Well, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it's known as. Jesus has taken his disciples along with many other followers. He's sitting on a grassy knoll overlooking the Sea of Galilee and he's teaching them. And I have been there personally and what a beautiful sight it is to sit there and look out over. There's a banana farm below it now as you sit out there and you look over onto the Sea of Galilee. And I can just imagine or picture what it would be like in that day uh, with Jesus sitting there talking to his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 5 verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, he said, For I say unto you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about last week about how that probably was a little bit surprising for them. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most religious people that they knew. And it was probably, they were probably a little taken back and they probably had the thought, oh, if they can't make it in, then what chance do I have? And we talked about how it would have bothered them in some sense. But we also talked about how the Pharisees and the scribes, they were religious leaders, they were religious people, but they were concerned with keeping the law on the outside. What did it look like on the outside of my life? Everyone looked at my life, what did they see? And they really didn't, or they really weren't concerned with what was going on on the inside. It only mattered what was going on on the outside. That was their concern. But Jesus, and he was explaining to them how the law of the Lord really wasn't just concerned about the outside. It was more concerned about the inside. And if the inside's right, then the outside will be right. But it's very possible for the outside to look right and the inside to be a mess. And that was the problem that they were having. It's about getting your heart right before the Lord. If your heart is right, if what's going on inside is right, then what's coming out is also going to be right. The problem that we have as human beings is we don't want everyone to know what's going on inside. So we put up what we think is right on the outside. That's usually what we do. And the Lord says, no, no, I don't want to just change the facade. I want to rework the plumbing on the inside. And that's what he's trying to teach them. That's what he's trying to show them. Again, that's why he said to them, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And when you think about what he's doing with these, with these uh, scriptures, it's really the difference between religion and relationship. The religion part being is living by a set of rules, but a relationship is your heart knit together with his. You see, they wanted a set of rules to live by on the outside. They wanted a, a series of boxes to check. This is what it means to be a Christian, or this is what it means to be a, a, a Hebrew or a Pharisee. Check these boxes, and I can make these boxes fit the outside of my life, but that's really not what Jesus is working on. He wants to work on the inside of their life. So here he's contrasting this religion of the Pharisees, which was unacceptable to God. That's what, that's what he's there to tell them, to the requirements of the law and the hearts of man. He wants to show them what the law was really supposed to do. Remember, they thought their righteousness came by the law. And Jesus is trying to show them, no, no, the law only exposes how undone you really are, how unrighteous you really are. It's supposed to serve as a schoolmaster, Paul would say, and point them to the Savior. They also, these verses in here on the Sermon on the Mount, they serve as our standard of Christian living. When you, when you want to know what should a Christian look like, how should his life be, take a look right here, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You should look at that. I should strive for that. It doesn't mean you're always going to make it, but it, we don't lower the standard simply because we can't achieve. We keep the standard in place and we try to come up to it. We don't just say, oh, well, it's too bad. We can't make that. See, this is what it means. And when we compare, when we keep the standard where it's supposed to be, you realize, yes, I fall short, but that's where my Savior comes in. And that's what he's showing. So pick up with me in chapter 6, verse 1. He says this. Take heed that you do not do 
your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. First thing he says is take heed, be warned, pay attention to this. And the word charitable has the implication that we're doing something for someone else. And a better translation would be righteous, righteous deeds. Do not do your righteous deeds before men. Why not? Because you're getting your reward. You're getting the recognition. You're losing the reward in heaven. He's not saying that they should not do charitable deeds or they should not do righteous deeds. What he is saying is don't do them out in public with the intent to draw attention or draw glory to yourself. Don't do them so you'll receive the praise and the admiration of men. You see, it's about your motivation. It's about why am I doing what I'm doing? Jesus is concerned about them building a reputation for righteousness among men or about building an image of righteousness before men. That's what they're doing. They're building their own image. When you do the things to impress people, they may be good things, but they could be, could be done for the wrong reasons. You see, their heart was, they weren't doing things for the Lord. They weren't trying to be righteous for the Lord. They were being righteous so everyone would look at them and go, ooh, you guys are righteous. You guys are spiritual. You guys got it all going on. He doesn't want them building this reputation of righteousness just so that the glory can be given to them. And that's what was taking place. I have found that in my life, it's always good for me to check my motive for doing something. It's good to check your motive once in a while. And I mean honestly check your motive. Because there's checking your motive and not checking your motive. There's, I check my motive for how long? How long? It's good to go check my motive. Why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? And in doing that, I ask myself this question. Who's getting the glory for what I'm doing? Am I willing to step aside and give God all of the glory? Or do I want a little bit of the spotlight? Do I want a little piece of recognition? Do I want a little bit of glory? Do I want something? Or am I really willing to step aside? Would I do it if nobody would know? What if nobody saw? What if there was no recognition given? What if the pastor didn't say thank you? What if nobody said thank you? What if nobody saw it? Would you still do it? You see, Jesus said when you do something righteous before men, you have your reward in men. You've got your reward. You're, you're, doing, you're getting it. But you know what the problem with that is? Men are going to quickly forget what you did. Because they run into that syndrome, what have you done for me lately? It's not what you've done, it's what you've done for me lately. It's much better to do your righteous deeds, your good works before God, and your rewards will be in heaven, where they won't be taken away, where they won't fade away or be, or be forgotten. So if we aren't to do good or charitable righteous deeds before men so everyone can see, how are we supposed to do them? What should our good deeds, what should they look like? What should our giving look like? Look at verse 2. He says, therefore, when you do a charitable deed... Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Instead of charitable deeds, some translations use the word alms and it literally refers to any act of mercy, uh, pity, but it can be used primarily of giving money, food, or clothing to the poor. That's what he's talking about, giving alms. It's like what you would say, if you're giving to charity, like what we would say, I'm going to give to a charity, I'm going to support a charity, I'm going to do something to help a charity or a church or something like that. That's what he's talking about. When you do these charitable deeds, don't sound a trumpet. 
You see, this giving of alms, this doing of charitable deeds in that day had been carried to absurd extremes by the rabbis. It, it had gone beyond. Their tradition had taken them beyond. In the Jewish books, they actually wrote these things down. It, it says something like this. It is better to give to charity than to lay up gold. For charity will save a man from death. It will pay for any sin. That's what they believed. That's how important it was to them. At another, another place. As water will quench a flaming fire, so charity will atone for sin. See, so they believed that. That's what the rabbis were teaching. That's how important it was. And Jesus is coming on the scene and he's taking everything that they've learned and he's twisting and he's, telling, he's teaching them the truth of the law of God. The truth of the law. Jesus says when you do a charitable deed or you give alms, don't do it so everyone can know about it. It needs to be done in secret. He said that's what the hypocrites do. They're the, the hypocrites are the ones that do it so everyone can see, so they can get the attention. We want everyone to know. You know what a hypocrite is, right? I've talked about it. They're actors. They're pretend people. In ancient Greek culture, the hypocrites were actors who wore a mask and pretended to be something that they were not or someone that they were not. It's what, it's what we, we would understand. That's where our word hypocrite came from, just like we have actors today. We have actors and actresses. What do they do on movies and in television shows? They pretend to be somebody they're not. And we end up liking the part of the person they're playing, and we, we elevate them to some sort of status, like all of a sudden they have a, they have, their opinion matters. Their opinion should matter less because we should know we can't even trust them. We don't even really know who they are. Oh, it's just what People Magazine says, or it's just, it's just what this person says, or it's what this talk show portrays. It's not who they really are, but yet that we've given them a platform. That's what they called hypocrites back in that day. They're actors, they're people who pretend. Jesus says, when you do this, you have your reward. When you're doing it in front of men so you can get the glory of men, you have your reward, and it came in the form of glory and recognition, and recognition from man. God does not reward men-pleasers. He doesn't. He, he's not interested in rewarding you for pleasing men. Do you know why? Because you're stealing his glory. You're getting the glory. Mankind gets the glory. We're, we're not supposed to get the glory. We're supposed to give all the glory to him. We're supposed to get out of the way. We're supposed to point everybody back to him. In verse 3, he tells us how to do a charitable deed. He says, but when you do a charitable deed, do not... Let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. The idea here is that your giving, your charitable deeds, whatever it is, needs to be done without anybody knowing what you're doing. If you're going to give to the Lord, do it secretly. Give to the Lord. You know, uh, and I've known people who have taken this to extremes. You know, where, where, they, where it's gone so far, they go, I, nobody can know what I'm doing. One person came up to me one time. It's been a long time. You don't know who they are, so don't try to figure it out. It's been nobody in this fellowship. And they said to me, I want to give a lot of money to the church, but I don't want anybody to know. You know what I said? Too late. You already told me. And they said, no, no, not you. I said, oh, okay. I don't want, I don't want anybody to know. And they were trying to be so secretive about it. I'm like, well, we'll just put it in the offering. You know, go, go put it. Well, no, I can't put that much cash in the offering box. Well, then write a check. Well, then they'll know who it was. I'm like, that's not, you're missing the whole point of the scripture. It's, that's, that's not what he's trying to, to get across here. Don't do it so you're drawing more attention to yourself now by doing it the way you're doing it than if you would have just stuck a check in the back and no one would have said a word. Like I said, it wasn't anybody here, so don't think that. Although if you want to, you know, just checks in the back. No. 
The idea is that you don't draw attention to what you're doing. It shouldn't be about you. In Jesus' day, when they put money in the jars, in the coffers, in the, in, the, in the containers that they were, they were made of metal, and they would drop the coins in, and you could hear them hit. And you know the, person, the, the, you know the story of the widow's mite, and she put two widow's mites, and she dropped them in. And if you've never seen a widow's mite, ask me later, I'll show you when I have a couple of them. They're really thin pieces of, of metal. You wouldn't even hardly hear them hit. They're, they're quiet. But yet the people that brought lots of money, what did they do? They bounced it around off the sides. They wanted to jingle and jangle. They wanted everyone to know. Everyone wanted to stop and look and know, who's just dumping all that in there? They wanted the attention to themselves, and that's not what's supposed to be happen, happening. They want everybody to hear the noise. And today, we can do something similar. Today, we don't drop coins. We usually write checks or drop cash. There's no loud, there's no loud noise. But sometimes people seek to make a big production of their giving. Sometimes churches seek to make a big production of their giving. Have you ever been to a church where they call people out of their seats during worship? They get them out sometimes. They'll have a, the last, they'll have a worship song and they'll, they'll put the box in the front and everybody by row comes out and gets in and they drop their money in the box. Have you ever seen that before? I have. Do you know why the churches do it? Because people give more. Why do they give more? Because people are watching. Oh, if we get them out of their seats and bring them up front and put, a, put the box up front and they drop, they're going to give more. 40% more is what the statistics say. We could raise the offering by 40% if we would do that. We could raise it by 30% if we would pass a plate. That's what the experts tell us. That if we, instead of putting a box in the back like we do, we could, we could collect 30% more if we would pass a plate because your neighbor would watch to see what you put in the offering box or the plate or whatever it was. You see, but it's not supposed to be that way. What you give is between you and the Lord, and what you do is between you and him. It's not, it's not a production. It's, it's, it's not supposed to be that way because somebody inevitably always gets hurt. Some people can only give a little, but they're giving more than the person who might be giving a much. A dollar amount isn't what's important. Other people, and maybe you've seen this, they parade around with their check, and they want everyone to know, I've got something. Oh, oh where's the offering box? Oh, I've got to go over here, and here it is over here. Let me give it over here. They, they, tell, they want everyone to make sure they hear it. They, they're trying to do it in a way where they're inconspicuous, but, they, but everyone's looking. and they're, No, just, just go do it between you and the Lord. It's between you and him. It doesn't need to be a production. Now, I've got to pause just for a second, because if you're remembering back from Matthew chapter 5, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had specifically commanded. He said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I don't want you to bring confusion to you. Say, so, wait a minute, Robin, in chapter 5, it said people are supposed to see our good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So he's not saying don't do good works. He's not saying that people can't see it. He's saying that where the glory has to be. He's addressing what the scribes and the Pharisees to do, or were doing. The question is not whether or not good works should be seen by others because it's okay for them to see it as long as they're glorifying your Father in heaven and not you. But rather, sometimes the glory was being put on man. And that was not pleasing to God. If our good works are done so they draw attention to ourselves then they are done self-righteously and hypocritically. It's almost inevitably done the wrong way. But the difference is the purpose and the motivation of what you're doing. When what we do is done with the right spirit and for the right purpose, it's always, almost always going to come out the right way. I heard the story of a pastor. He told of when he first started getting involved in church. He went out and swept the parking lot and decided it, because the parking lot needed to be swept, he was going to sweep the entire parking lot. But he also knew that the pastor's window, he wasn't a pastor at this time, he later became a pastor. 
while he was just getting involved in church, he knew that the pastor of the church's window overlooked the parking lot. So he thought the pastor would look out the church and see out the window and see him out there sweeping the entire parking lot by himself. And somehow that would, that would elevate him. And he did. He went out there and swept the whole parking lot. Then he realized the pastor was off that day. And he was convicted by it because the Lord brought him to this area of Scripture and he realized his motivation was wrong. He wasn't suing it to serve the Lord. He was doing it so he would get recognition, so he would get glory. So, he would, so the pastor would come out and say, hey, thanks for the hard work. Thanks for really doing that. And, and he wasn't even there that day. And you can just imagine him out there sweeping, keep looking up the window. I wonder if he sees me yet. I wonder if he sees me yet. No, he's out golfing. That's what we pastors do. <laughs> we only work 45 minutes on Sunday, right? And 45 minutes on Thursday. No, it was his day off. Let's move on to verse 5 in prayer. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. That they may, see, they may, be, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. At this time in the world, there was not a religion that had a higher standard or priority for prayer than Judaism. Prayer was important to them. No other race of people had ever been so favored by God had ever had such direct communication with God as the Jewish people had. God spoke directly to Abraham and many of his descendants. Wouldn't you think they knew how to pray? Nobody had ever spoke to the living God or heard from the living God or had interaction from the living God the way the Jewish people had. Nobody ever. You'd think they knew how to do it right, but they didn't. They didn't. That's why Jesus is teaching them. Like many aspects of their life, of their religion, of their relationship with God, prayer had been corrupted. It had been perverted by their rabbinic tradition. Their rabbis had made it a tradition. It had become ritualistic. And I saw five ways in there that their prayer life had been corrupted. Number one, prayer had become a routine and a ritual to them. It was very routine and very ritual. It was simply a religious routine, and the true meaning of prayer was lost. It was just something we did at a certain time. It's just something, it was just very, rich, very ritualistic. William Barclay said this, he said, Their prayer had become ritualized. The wording and forms of prayers were set and were then simply read or repeated from memory. Such prayers could be given with almost no attention being paid to what was being said. They were a routine, semi-conscious, religious exercise. They just went through the motions. You've been there? Yeah, you have. You know you have. I have too. When someone recited ritual prayers, when, if, if, if all that you're praying is ritualistic, it's routine, it's just the same thing over and over and over again, you're going to find yourself in one of three places. And the first place that you're going to find is, could, it could be, sincerity. 
It's possible that religious prayer, routine, ritual, there are sincere people who follow these rituals or these routines. There are sincere people. Just because something is ritualized doesn't mean people can't be sincere. Sometimes religions today, sometimes some, some, some of our denominations have, relig- have re- prayers that are repeated. But trust me when I say there are sincere people that are praying those same ritualistic prayers. They're, don't, 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 they're, they're, there's, just because they're routine or ritualistic doesn't mean there's not sincerity behind some of them. Don't just mark them out that way. But the second thing that ritualistic prayer can bring is indifference. You become indifferent to it. Yeah, it's no big deal. It's just, it's just words coming out of my mouth. When prayer is ritualistic, people can easily become indifferent. It just doesn't really matter to them. It's just, it's just what we do. They say the words without caring, and they really don't understand what they're saying. It's just, it's just words flowing off your tongue. They, they, don't, they don't grasp the meaning and the, and the true experience and the heartfelt emotions that are going through it. They're just, we would say, going through the motions. They're just, they're, we're just going through the motions. And the third thing that it can, ritualistic prayer could bring you, you could be sincere, you could be indifferent, but the third thing is where we find the Pharisees and the scribes. Pride. Pride. It could bring pride. It's what happened to the Pharisees. Look at us. Look how good we pray. Pray like us. We're more spiritual than you because we know all the words to the prayers. We don't just know some of them. We've got them all memorized. We pray at the right times. It became very, they became very, very prideful and arrogant in their spirituality because of their ritualistic ways, and they began looking down upon everybody else it brings one of those three things it'll always do that it'll, it, it will it could bring sincerity it could bring indifference or it could be pride number two the things that the problem with prayer that was happening there is prayer had become <clears throat> prayer had become prescribed prescribed like like a doctor would prescribe medicine it had become a prescription for something they had a prayer for every circumstance and occasion If this happened, you prayed this prayer. If that happened, you prayed that prayer. Whatever you needed, you just prayed. Whatever it was, it was just, you just had a certain prayer. Good news, this prayer. Bad news, that prayer. A new moon, this prayer. Somebody dies in the family, that prayer. Whatever it is, it's just one prayer after another. Now, the original intent of that was good. The idea was that we're going to bring God into every aspect of our life by praying a prayer for everything. That's a good thing. But what happens? It becomes ritualistic. To some people, they're sincere, and it does what it's supposed to do. Most people become indifferent, and a few people become prideful. That's exactly what we see taking place. The other thing, error I see in their prayer, is prayer had been limited. It had been limited. In other words, they set up times to pray. Over, over time, prayers were limited to a specific time and certain occasions, you prayed when they said you were supposed to pray. You prayed three times a day at the right times, at those specific times. And you know what that brings? If you know what time the afternoon prayer is coming, you know what you can do? You can wander to the busiest intersection in town. You can wander to the marketplace. You can wander where everybody can see you. You can wander at just the right spot, at just the right moment. I just happened to be streaming Facebook Live when here's my, oh, now look, it's prayer time. I got to pray so everybody has to watch. It's what happens. You'll see that in Israel, you'll see people praying everywhere in the middle of the streets. You'll see it in the airport going over there. A lot of Orthodox Jews, it's prayer time. They face Israel and they pray. You've seen it around the Muslims before. At certain times of day, they pray, depending on where they're at. A lot of times, they'll just throw out their prayer rug and bow down and pray. What about the other times? What if you need prayer more than three times a day? No, no, you've got to wait till the afternoon prayer. 
No, no, what, what, if I, what if I need prayer every moment of a day because it's a tough day? You see, when you, when you, when you begin to legislate it that way, you, you take away, you limit it essentially. The other problem that they had, oh, we do that. I made a note here. This is, we do this. Do you know when we do that in the United States as Christians? Mealtime. Let's pray. It's mealtime. Lord, bless this food. Thank you for the food and have a great day. Amen. Do you realize that for some people that's the only praying they do? Why do we pray for meals? For some, when you go to a restaurant and you sit down, ask yourself this next time. Why am I praying? Why am I praying right now? Ask yourself, what's the intent? Is this, is this so everyone can see that I'm a Christian? I want everyone to know as I bow my head and pray. Or is it truly giving of thanks for the food? If it's truly giving of thanks, go ahead, pray. We should do that. And we, we should exercise that. But sometimes we pray just because it's routine. Because that's what we do before we eat. And other times, you see, do you follow what I'm saying? It needs to be real. It needs to be, I, I, are you truly giving thanks to God for the food? And I've made jokes about it before. We pray for all kinds of food. You know, I, I, I'll never forget it. The first time it ever hit me, we were studying this, and I was sitting there. We, it, it was year, years ago, and I was sitting with a friend of mine, and he prayed over our lunch, and we had a, I had a big bowl of chicken wings in front of me. And he said, Lord, pray that this food will be healthy to our bodies. And I thought, how could, I mean, God could make the chicken wings healthy, but I already know they're not. So thank you for the food, bless the food, okay, but, but you're not going to make greasy chicken wings healthy. It just doesn't work that way. But yet we do it sometimes. You see, our prayers sometimes in the United States as Christians have become that way. They simply can be that way because we limit it. This is when we pray. If the only time that you pray is before all three meals, you're missing out on a relationship with the Lord. Because there's a lot more prayer that needs to happen in your life besides that. Prayers there for the Pharisees have also become, they, they were becoming long and esteemed. You ever, you ever hear a pastor pray long? You know, not like long, like really long, like, you know, like the message is half over and he hasn't said amen yet. Like long prayers, the longer the prayer, the more effective they believed. They believed the longer prayer was more effective. Now, you know, that's not true, right? It doesn't matter how long the prayer is. A few words to the Lord is just as effective. It matters as the heart. Matter of fact, Jesus warned of the scribes who, for appearance sake, offer long prayers. Now, it's important to say that long prayers are not always wrong. Long prayers are not always insincere, but they do lend themselves to repetition. Long prayer, there's nothing wrong with a long prayer, but when you're praying a long prayer because you think you're getting something out of it or because you think God's paying more attention because you're talking more, not necessarily. You ever been to a prayer meeting where everybody prays for the same thing? I went to a prayer meeting once, and I, and I was sitting there, and it, it lasted about three hours. And we prayed for the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And I thought, this is ridiculous. We all agree corporately we're sitting here in prayer. Why are, let's move on. There's other things that need prayer. There's other people who need prayer, but it was the same thing. This person prayed for him. That person prayed for him. This person prayed. That person prayed. And this person prayed. And I, it, the whole prayer meeting wasn't that. But I, I got to thinking, like, wait a minute. When the body of Christ gathers corporately, and one person prays. We're all agreeing in that prayer. We don't need to then pray for it again. We've already done that. Let's, let's move on to those, those other things. There's no reason to keep repeating that over and over again. You see, the ancient rabbi said the long prayer, the longer the prayer was, the more likely it was to be heard by God. The longer it was, then God would hear it. It's not the length. It's the sincerity 
of the prayer that God's concerned with. It's the heart of the one who is praying, not the length. He also told us in that passage that prayer had become repetitious, like the pagan religions. Repetitious prayer. Do you remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Remember when they were up there and the prophets of Baal called upon their God? They called upon the God of Baal, it tells us in 1 Kings chapter 18, from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. And they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. They prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they said the same thing over and over and over again. They went on to start cutting themselves, and Elijah's making fun of them the whole time. He's saying, yeah, maybe your God's busy, maybe he's in the bathroom, maybe he can't hear, maybe he's on vacation. He's saying all this kind of stuff. They repeated the same phrase over and over again, hour after hour with no response. The problem is the prayers of God's people began to look like this. Just becoming vain repetition, saying the same thing over and over again. Not sincere in what they're saying, just saying it because that's what they think they have to say. So what's the proper way to pray? How should we pray? Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Prayer. It's basically defined as communication with God. It's you talking to God, God talking to you. Prayer is not to, it's been well said that prayer is not to establish man's will in heaven. It's to establish or to learn God's will here on earth. It's not, we don't, we don't, we're not trying to twist God's arm like a kid who wants something. And if you ask enough times, he's going to say, fine, you can have it. It's we're trying to discern what God wants. How, how do we please him? Notice what it says when you pray. When you pray. When you pray, this gives us great latitude. It doesn't describe a certain time. When you pray, when you need to pray, when it's time to pray, when there's something bothering you, when whatever the situation is, whatever the circumstances, when you need to pray, what does he say? Go into your room. Go into your room. And the language there, it suggests a small inner room of a house. Some place that they would hide or store valuables so they wouldn't be found easily. It's a private place. Go someplace private. Go someplace quiet. Go someplace where you're not going to be distracted. What did he say? Shut your door. Shut your door. Isolate yourself from everything else. Shut it out. Sometimes you have to go somewhere and isolate yourself in order to pray. Turn your phone off. Turn your iPad off. Get away from the sounds of your office. Get away from your desk that's cluttered full of papers. Get away from wherever it is that you're working and you need to get out and isolate yourself. Maybe that's a closet in your home. Maybe it's out in the woods someplace. Whatever it is, wherever it's too cold for that now. Stay inside. But wherever it is that you have to get away alone to pray, you need to go there. How often do you visit? It should be a place that you go regular. Shut your door. Isolate yourself. For me, I like early in the mornings. I like middle of the night. I like when, when, when there's serious praying that needs to be done in my life, it's either got to be, if it's in my house, it's got to be in the middle of the night or early in the morning before anybody gets up. Otherwise, my house is too crazy. There's, there's always something going on. Then I have to go out to the woods. I have to go. I've sat in my truck many times in a, in a park somewhere or in the woods somewhere just quietly. And that's, that's my quiet time. Turn my phone off or go someplace where a cell phone doesn't even work, doesn't even ring. You know, I do that often. I, I've got to get away. I've got, to, I've got to have that quiet time. I don't want an iPad. I want a, I want a Bible, a, a physical Bible. 
iPads are great to read from, but you know what happens when I have an iPad? There's too many applications on there. I get too distracted. I need to get away. The only thing I want in front of me is the Bible, and I want to pray that way. Shut your, go into your room, shut your, shut your door. Now, I also need to make a note here. He's not condemning corporate prayer. He's not saying we shouldn't gather together corporately. He's speaking against the Pharisees who were taking their prayer time and making it public so they could be recognized as spiritual for praying out in public. He's saying, listen, make your prayer time quiet and personal between you and the Lord. It's where you'll find your answers. It's where the Lord's going to meet you in his word and, and really impress upon your heart. Much of our prayer life should be in secret. We have a prayer meeting every Sunday night, and we have prayer requests, and we pray for 45 minutes. And those 45 minutes are fantastic if you ever joined us. They're wonderful. It's, it's a wonderful time of prayer. I wouldn't trade it for the thing, but I would tell anybody, if that's the only prayer you're getting all week, you're starving. We haven't had it for two Sundays in a row because of Christmas and New Year's, and I miss it. I can't wait to have it again next week. It, it just, I need it. I want it. I, I, I have to have that. But that's not the only prayer I get all week, and it shouldn't be the only prayer you get all week. You see, I think there's something special that happens when we gather corporately as a church to pray. I think it's the idea, and I've said this to the group before, I think it's like a parent. I think the Lord's like a parent who his kids are coming home. It's like a holiday, and all the kids are gathering around the table, and the Lord says, yeah, my kids are coming home at Calvary Chapel tonight. I get to hang out with them. They're going to spend time with me. They're going to crawl up on my lap, and they're going to tell me what's going on, and, and I'm going to be able to share with them, and they're going to get together, and we're going to have a great time tonight. I think the Lord, I think he longs, I think he talks to the angels about it on Sunday nights. Well, guess what? We're going to Calvary Chapel tonight. They're going to be there. And what a blessing it is. Do you realize Jesus regularly went away from his disciples to pray alone? He prayed with them, I don't doubt it. But there was also times where he said, you know what, I've got to get away. I've got to get alone. It's okay that your family members or your friends know that you're praying. But they don't need to hear you do it. They don't need, it doesn't need to be a show in front of them. It's between you and the Lord. In fact, during Jesus' most intense times of spiritual opposition, the, worst, the most intense times that he had, I think the number one was in the, des in the desert, where he faced a, direct, faced a direct temptation from Satan himself. The most intense times. Number one was the desert. Number two, what do you think it might be? I think it was the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was crucified. They're kneeling on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was to die. What was he doing on both of those occasions? He was alone, praying to the Father. Praying to his Father. We already looked at verse 7 briefly, so let's look at verse 8. He says, Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. Again, Jesus is drawing the line between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and what the true obedience of the law looks like. It's not just an outward obedience, it's an inward obedience. But don't miss the last part of verse 8. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. So why bother praying? He already knows what I need. He already knows what I'm going to say. Why should I waste my time? Because if you don't, you're missing out on the relationship between you and Him. One commentator put it this way. He said this. He said, prayer is sharing the needs, the burdens, and hunger of our hearts before our Heavenly Father, who already knows what we need, but who wants us to ask Him. 
He wants to hear us. He wants to commune with us more than we could ever want to commune with him because his love for us is so much greater than our love for him. Do you realize he wants to meet with you in prayer more than you want to meet with him? And it's always us that say, I don't have time. What, how does that feel as a parent when your kid says, I don't have time? I don't have a, and I'm sorry, dad, I'm too busy. I'm sorry, mom, I can't make it today. I got too much going on. And the Lord's there in heaven going, I want to bless you. I want to, I want to meet with you. I want to, I want to help you through this. You go, ah, I just don't really get anything out of that. If for no other reason, go because he desires it. Pray because he desires it. Prayer is our giving the opportunity, giving God the opportunity to manifest his power, his majesty, his love, and the way that he provides for us. Think of the opportunity you give him when you come to him in prayer and say, Lord, here I am. Search my heart. Here I am. Speak to me, Lord. Here I am. And you know the great thing is he knows if you're serious or not. You can go and say, Lord, here I am. Search my heart. And, you know, and he knows what your heart really thinks. I'm not listening to a word you're going to say anyways. And you know what you'll hear? Nothing. But if you're serious, say, Lord, here I am. Search my heart. Lord, I need to talk about something tonight. Lord, there's something going on. I, I have a business problem. I have a family problem. I have an issue. There's something going on. I really need some help with this. And you lay it all out there for him. And you think, well, he already knows that. Yeah, but now you're laying it out with him. You're connecting with him. And you lay it out for him. And he just puts a verse on your heart. Or you open up the Bible and you find that verse that says, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's the one you needed to hear. Or whatever it might be. He meets you right where you're at. To pray rightly is to pray with a devout heart and with pure motives. We pray with sincere confidence that our Heavenly Father both hears and answers every request that we make to Him in faith. He answers every single one of them. He always repays our sincere devotion with a gracious response. If our request is sincere, but not according to His will, He will answer in a way better than we want or expect. You see, sometimes we ask him to do things. Lord, will you do this? He says, no. But that's still an answer. No, I won't do that. And we want to know why. But why won't you do that, Lord? He goes, oh, trust me. My way's better. I'm not going to tell you why right now. But you're going to trust me. You're going to have to have faith that, that I, my ways are better than your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. They're beyond you. You don't even understand what I'm doing, but I, I can't do that right now. You see, when we pray, our heart is we might ask the Lord for something, but our heart needs to be, your will be done, not mine. Your will, Lord. You know better than I do. If our request is sincere, but not according to his will, he will answer in a way better than we want or expect, but he will always answer. Yes, no, or wait. Oh, we don't like the wait. But sometimes we need to wait. But Lord, tell me why. I don't have to tell you why. And if I told you why, you wouldn't really understand anyways. Just wait. Trust me. Trust me on that. Adam Clark put it this way. He said, prayer is not designed to inform God, but to give man a sight of his misery, to humble his heart, to excite his desire, to inflame his faith, to animate his hope, to raise his soul from earth to heaven, and to put him in the mind that there is his father his country, and his inheritance. You get the opportunity to stand, sit, kneel, on your face, whatever posture you choose to go before the creator of the universe any time you want. And he says, just meet with me privately. 
Just come meet with me. Come hang out with me. Come tell me. And far too often our response is, I don't have time for that. I'm too busy. I don't ever hear from him. I don't get anything out of that. What do you think he gets out of it? When one of his children sits at his feet and says, here I am, Lord. If you want to talk, I'm here. If not, I'm going to wait. If you're facing a big decision, I challenge you sometime to take your Bible and go pray and tell the Lord, I'm not leaving until I hear an answer. I did that once. Four days later, I got an answer. Now, I knew it would be a long time. I brought a bunch of water. I knew I wasn't going to eat. I was going to fast. And I sat for four days before I got an answer. And I often wonder, why didn't you just tell me on the first day? And I think his answer would have been, I want to see how serious you were. I wanted to see, did you really want to hear from me? Or if, were you just going to give me five minutes? And if I don't hear from me in five minutes, then I guess that's not, God's not talking, so you just go make your decision whatever you want it to be. You see, prayer in the life of a believer is important. It's not something that we should take lightly. It's something that we should run to. It's not something that we just look past. Paul said, pray without ceasing. Not just before meals. Not just on Sunday morning or Sunday night. Pray without ceasing. Our, our life of prayer is so, so important. I will challenge you that if your life is difficult, if you're stressed out, if you're worn out, if you're worn down, ask yourself, how is my prayer life? And I will be willing to bet that you would come back and say, not very good. How much time am I spending in the Word? You see, for me, it's not always preparing a message. It's, it's a little bit harder for me because I have to spend a lot of time in the Word preparing a message. But that doesn't always count as my time in the Word because sometimes the Lord wants to speak to me besides what's going on in the Scriptures. Oh, he, he's, he has a lot to say just in Thursdays and Sundays. But sometimes He wants to talk to me besides that. And I have to get in the Scriptures somewhere else and some other time and just sit quietly before Him and read and study. Do you really want to hear what He has to say? Do you really want Him to direct your life? Or is he your co-pilot? Right? God is my co-pilot. Remember those bumpers? Remember those things on the front of cars? God is my co-pilot. That means I'm taking the decisions and he's following along. He needs to be the pilot. You need to be the co-pilot. He needs to be the one leading and guiding and, you, and deciding. And you're the one that says, all right, I'm, I'm along for the ride, Lord. If you can get those roles right, it's so fun to watch him work. There is, let me tell you something. There is nothing better than having a burden on your heart and bringing it before the Lord in prayer, whether it be five minutes or five days, and having him give you the answer. When he says, and he, and he reveals this to you, and he shares, either, whether it's out of his word or whether it's a still small voice, whatever it is, where you know, I just heard from the Lord. I heard from the creator. I heard from him. I know that voice. And so often for me in my life, it's just a few words. Just a few words, just a small sentence, just something short. People sometimes say, I haven't heard from him in a while. And I ask him this question, did you do the last thing he told you? What do you mean? Well, when's the last time you heard from him? What did he tell you? Well, he told me to, did you do it? Are you obedient? Not yet. No, I haven't. Why would he tell you the next thing? Go back to what he told you. Go back, go, go, if, you if, if you're dry and you, I'm not hearing, go back to where you last were. Are you walking in obedience to it? Or are you just... I'm just doing what I want. People sometimes will ask me, 
how do you think that what, what's what's causing the growth in the church what, what's causing it you know what, do you, what are you doing I say I'm not doing anything I, we teach the Bible we pray we worship there's no special formula but if you come to one of our prayer meetings on Sunday night my personal belief is that's why the Lord's blessing our church that's why we're seeing the Lord use us for radio stations, for addictions ministries. That's why we're seeing these things pop up. Because there's a few faithful people, and that group is growing continually. There's a few faithful people who get together every week and pray. 15 or 20 of us usually, sometimes more, sometimes less. But we get together every week and we pray. We've been doing it now for how long? Five, five years. Over five years. Over five years. We've been getting together every Sunday night to pray. It matters. It makes a difference. It's huge. Well, we don't have time tonight to get into the Lord's Prayer, so we'll pick that up next week. But I would encourage you, as you take a look at these scriptures here, ask yourself, how is my prayer life? Is it where it needs to be? And the chances are, as you ask yourself that question, you're going to say, no, it could be better. Because if you say, yep, my prayer life is perfect, come meet with me, I need some counsel. Because when, I ask, when I'm asking myself that question, there's always room for improvement. There's always room. I don't think it's anything we'll ever have down. But I also think it's not anything we just go, ah, that's no big deal. If our prayer life is off, the chances are the rest of our life is off too. Chances are we're the one leading and not him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these scriptures that you're teaching, Lord Jesus, you're sitting on the hill there looking over the Sea of Galilee sharing these verses almost 2,000 years ago and we're reading them here today it's unbelievable they're just as applicable today as they were then Lord as you're teaching your apostles you're teaching us the same truths still apply we need, the same, we need to hear the exact same things or would, we be, would we always be willing to take an inventory ask ourselves why we're doing what we're doing there's always a tendency within our flesh to do good deeds to do things so that people would notice lord may you clean that out of us it would be more impressed with you may our focus be impressing you and, and serving you rather than impressing man may we not care what man thinks of us but may we lay our head on the pillow at night knowing we've served our father in heaven Lord, if there's anything in our life that's not that way, if there's anything we're doing with selfish motives, trying to bring glory to ourselves, would you correct that in us? Lord, if we're like the Pharisees, acting religious on the outside, but our heart's far from you on the inside, Lord, would that wall come down? Would we be willing to tear it down? Would we be willing to be transparent enough before you to say, Lord, we've strayed? We've gotten away. And Lord, if we're where we're supposed to be, if we're here tonight and everything's all right, then we praise you for it. Maybe we give you the glory. May we not think that we've got life figured out because we're only a moment away from something we can't control. Lord, may we walk faithfully with you, keeping our eyes on eternity and our hearts focused on you. May your ways supersede our ways. May we look to bring you glory. May you increase and may we decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.